these four verses that would be good for all of us with families and the struggles of family life. Young Christians, young theologians, what does love look like? Describe love. And here's where it really gets hard. See if you can do it with one word, just one. You'll hear me describe it with one word. You're going to have to listen all the way to the end. Let's see if you can do it in one word. What is love? This is the good news of Jesus in the letter to the church at Ephesus. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, give us warmth and welcome in your gospel because we need it and we don't really believe it. So we need you to proclaim it to us again and convince our hearts that this is how deeply, how fully, how completely you love us. And if you will speak to us in these ways again this morning, then our hearts will go free and we will give you thanks. We ask it in the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. Be seated. The gospel is about a lost sheep who couldn't make its way back home. The gospel is not about the good little sheep who knew better than to run away. The gospel is not about the good little sheep who never did anything bad, anything wrong. The gospel is about the sheep who ran away and bucked and bit and bleated endlessly and every day. The gospel is about the sheep who would have been better off as a mutton platter except that the shepherd wouldn't hear of it. The distance crossed for incarnation and the pains of the cross and the difficulty of the resurrection. Don't tell the story of a sheep who was well behaved and obedient. They tell the story of a sheep who felt like a curse and a shepherd who was faithful and who loved the sheep and went after it. And any other version of that story is not the gospel. Which means, I think, in our calls for obedience at home, our calls for obedience from our children, we are not telling them the gospel. We are telling them another story altogether. That Jesus loves the good little sheep. Jesus loves the sheep that never think about running away. And that's where submission saves both parents and children. Submission is giving ourselves up to the true gospel. Submission is, whether you're a child or an adult, Jesus carrying in his own redeeming arms, in his own redeeming strength, the sheep who can't make their way home on their own. And Jesus himself saw his gospel this way. 
because he told, as one of his most famous parables, one of the most beloved parables of all, the story of a runaway son. And while all the neighbors of this particular family were bragging about their own sons who were valedictorians and magna cum laude's and doctors and lawyers and restaurateurs and successful business owners, the father of this son could only say, my son is a disappointment. And he's broken my heart. And he's off spending his inheritance. And he's not living it up so much as he's dying slowly. And ah, I miss him. Ah, I miss him. I love him. It's a strange parable, the story of the runaway son. We know him by the name, the prodigal. But Jesus compared his kingdom of grace to the story of the disappointing son. This is who my kingdom is for. The runaways, the inheritance wasters, the pig handlers, the regrettable, the low-down, dirty, rotten shames, the self-improved, the impressive, they don't need a Savior, but the self-destroyed do. For them, a Savior is good news. For them, a Savior is a deep breath in an airless vacuum. And if you listen closely enough to Jesus, you start to get the impression that his flock is made up entirely of the black sheep of the family. And there's not a one of them in the bunch who's clean on his or her own terms. I had a cousin I never met, but I heard of him endlessly. He was a ghost, a vapor who swirled around and haunted our family tree. He disappeared as a teenager. He left it all behind left his life, left his home, left his family. As far as we knew, he left his name. And he never made contact. No phone calls from faraway phone booths. No cards or letters just to let us know that he was alive and well with distant postmarks stamped on them. There were trickling rumors at family gatherings that he'd invented for himself a life deep in South America, but it was always only rumor and gossip. Private investigators were hired and sent south, but they never turned up anything. And always my aunt and uncle remained proud and shattered and longing. They dropped his name like he was there with us at the reunions, like he was just out in the backyard throwing horseshoes with the uncles. They told stories of him whenever there were people to listen, and they never stopped remembering and boasting of what he was like when he was young, how good he was in school and at sports, what promise he had. And in my mind, they were fools, my aunt and uncle, pining for a son who didn't want them. Maybe they were the best parents I have ever seen. Maybe they were parents straight out of the parable, keeping constant vigil, keeping the flicker of hope 
alive for a lost son to come home one day, saying in their hearts, saying in their remembrances, it doesn't matter how far you run, and it doesn't matter how deep you cut us and how painfully you wound us. You can break our hearts. You just can't turn them away. And that's the heart of the father in the parable. At the son's damned fool demand, the father empties his bank account and he loads the son's pockets up with inheritance. And the coins are clinking heavy in his pockets as he walks away from the family farm. And the father stands in the driveway, bawling his eyes out, watching his son go. He knows that his son will meet new friends and he'll explain to them that he's come into his wealth early. But the father knows none of the money is going to be invested. He knows where it's headed. It'll be signed away on lavish restaurant bills. It'll be tucked into strippers' waistbands, note by note. It'll be left in wads of cash on a dresser for some gomer, a whole line of them. It'll be doubled down on long shot after long shot at the track, bet endlessly on the black seven at the roulette table. The father's not crying for the loss of money. He's crying for the loss of his son. When he pulls into the corner gas station at the end of the farm-to-market road and the neighbors ask, has he heard anything from the boy? He tears up, not from the shame and embarrassment and the anger. He tears up from missing his son. He's had to mortgage the farm to the hilt. He's had to sell off farm equipment and he's had to let some of his staff go just to keep the place running, but he has more to give his wastrel son. He hasn't even worn down to his reserves for the way he loves his son. He leaves the boy's bedroom the way he left it. And he always has the cook set a place at the table during the evening meal for the missing son. And he runs to the mailbox every day and hovers over the phone and he stands at the window and watches the road and at night he perches a chair in front of the same window and falls asleep in the late hours. So when he finally sees his son, Mr. Rockbottom himself, come walking back down the road. He doesn't have a rehearsed speech. All those things that he's been storing up to say to his son for breaking his heart, if he ever got the chance again. All he has is an old man's sprint as fast as his arthritic limbs and his paper-thin lungs can carry him. And he falls on his son, not with blows, but with kisses. Not with curses, but sobs and laughter. It's none of what we expect. And it's probably none of what we want in a scene like this. But here's the good news for our warped, twisted, tangled, vindictive, vengeful hearts. The money ran out. The excuses ran out. 
options ran out, explanations ran out, but love didn't. In fact, to have this surprisingly gracious ending at the end of the parable, the parable has to be full of death. The father dies to any wrath he might have felt for the rejection and the abandonment and the disregard from his son. And the son dies to holding on to his life in his own hands. The father has to die to any hope or need of restitution from the son. And the son has to die to any notion of working his debt and his sin off. And they both have to die to their pride. But the one thing that doesn't die is love. The son ran away because he was convinced his father didn't love him. And by the way, that's the root of all of our sin. Our God doesn't truly love us. He doesn't really. So I'll find some feeling, some sense of love somewhere else, in something else, in someone else. But the son turned back home when he realized the love he'd thrown away. Slopping pigs reduced to feeding unclean animals from an heir of a great house to a prince of uncleanness. And there in the pigsty, he realizes even his father's servants are loved. Even his father's servants are treated like family. And maybe that trace of love will be enough. And it carries him on the long trip back home through all of his shame and guilt. And when he arrives at his father's house, it's love that receives him back. And when he, when he tries to come out with his long speech about how his father should never take him back as a son, but should only allow him to be a servant, the lowest of servants at that, the father won't hear of it. Love won't have him as anything less than a son. Love will only work through forgiveness, not indentured servitude. And it's love that sees to it that the son is restored with the family name as if it had ever been taken from him. And it's love that sees that he gets a full share of the family business, whatever's left of it. And it's love that throws the family budget out the window and throws the largest barbecue in the region that anybody can remember in recent memory. And in the end, it's love, the love that was always there that will keep the son from ever needing to run away again. It's a saving, soothing, proving, keeping, forgiving, winning love. What Paul doesn't say in the Ephesians 6 passage, what Paul doesn't have to say in the Ephesians 6 passage, because Jesus has already said it in the parable of the prodigal son is... God does not provoke you to anger. He's not out to exasperate you. It's the truth that's the hardest of all truths to believe. But incarnation and crucifixion and resurrection were not designed and they were not done to frustrate you. The uncreated Son of God in the cramped confines of an infant's body, the Savior nailed, spread-eagled on a cross, 
the once dead as a doornail Messiah, shaking off rigor mortis and shaking off the tomb. They are all the Father whose love never died, running out to sinners as they come slinking home, expecting to have the door slammed in their faces, only to be wrapped up in a slobbery bear hug that feels blasphemous to pull away from, and it feels holy as you melt into it. All of it was done for sinners who expect to be told, I have no son. You can be a slave, and that only. And hearing instead, you were dead and now you're alive. You were lost, but now you're found. Everything our God has done through Jesus was done for sinners who expect to hear, you have a lot of nerve coming back here. I can't believe you would dare to show your face here. You're dead to me. But hearing instead, I've died to all my claims of retribution. Can we get on with the party? There's no payback. Will you just come into the party? Provoking to anger, exasperation, they're methods that are only needed when we don't have love to give. And that's why your God doesn't use them. He only has love to give. And I think that's the gospel. You don't have to run away from love. And you can submit to one who is not out to exasperate you and frustrate you and crush you. You can submit to one who dies to everything but love. So why do our kids feel like they're put in a headlock when we read these verses from Ephesians 6 to them? The Spanish-born artist Picabia had a huge mansion in southern France, and he decorated every room in a different theme, and he decorated the nursery, his children's bedroom, with torture devices he had collected throughout Europe. You wouldn't dream of doing that. So why is it then that we decorate the hallways of their hearts with devices of torture of our own? Oh, it's all because of the ways that we misread these verses, this passage. The passage says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And we read it, we read it, Children, obey your parents, for they are always right. And it doesn't say that. Not by a long shot. There's actually more laid on us than on our children in that line. Lead your children in the gospel, in the loving, restorative ways of the cross and the resurrection, for this is right. And they'll have no reason not to obey. The passage says, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And we read it, we read it, obey your parents or you're going to die. And it doesn't say that. It's not a cautionary tale. It's a promise of grace. Honor your father and mother who teach you the words and the ways of the Savior. And of course, 
You'll have a life filled with His grace. Listen to them, and you will have His grace too. The passage says, Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. Some versions say, don't exasperate your children. I love that. This this bent mission to frustrate our children. And we read the passage, Fathers, it's your calling to exasperate your children. Your children need to be exasperated, and Jesus likes it when you do it. And none of us would actually come out and say that. But why do we live that way? Ah, because that's actually what we believe. And in truth, I, I heard a father say it recently. Angry that he couldn't control his son. Angry he couldn't make his son what he wanted him to be. He said that his son was the runaway son from the parable of the prodigal, and he needed to be flat on his face in repentance, which may be true. It may be true, but the tone of the father communicated he wanted to be the agent of exasperation that pressed the son onto his face and forced, squeezed repentance out of him. But look, that's not what this passage says. And it isn't the picture of the Father that Jesus paints in the parable. What the passage says is, Father's exasperation isn't your method because it isn't the message of the gospel. And what the parable says is, the Son exasperated himself. What the parable says is that the Son provoked his own anger by rejecting his Father's love throwing away his wealth, which was not his money. It wasn't his trust fund. It was his father's heart for him. And that's what made him return home. Our message, our message is, if you're exasperated, it's because you're tangled in your own heart. It's because you don't believe you're loved. You don't believe. That the Father in heaven has loved you with his entire estate, all that he has. And the older brother who didn't want the returning home son to come into the feast, wanted the whole thing called off and canceled. The older brother for you is Jesus himself. And he's the host of the feast. He doesn't sit outside of it with his arms crossed saying, you don't deserve to come in. The older brother, in your case, laid down his inheritance. He laid down his life so that you could be brought in. You don't believe that God is gracious and not cheap and cruel and devious. You don't believe that your own earthly parents, they're not perfect, belong to Jesus and he can use them to be gracious to you. You think wrongly, your only option is to run away. You want to run away? Fine. Wear yourself out. But when you reach the dead end and you have nothing left and you're tired, come back and rejoice in love. It'll be waiting for you. But if you're exasperated, you exasperate yourself. That's our message. If you're a child here this morning, Paul is writing this part of the letter to you. Did you hear it? 
Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, but my parents aren't always right. And my parents aren't always good. And I'm a parent, and I agree. We're not always right, and we're not always good. And do you know that Jesus obeyed Mary and Joseph? Think of it. Jesus was sinless, and Mary and Joseph were sinful, and he still obeyed them. Jesus knew that one day he would be the sin offering. He would die for their sins, and he still obeyed them. Can you believe it? And it's all because Jesus' heart didn't trust Mary and Joseph. His heart trusted God. Jesus knew God the perfect Father was always holding him. God the perfect Father always had him, was always being good to him. And the same is true for you. Your parents aren't always right, but God is and he has your heart. And your parents aren't always good with you, but God is and he's holding you. And there's a promise in what he's telling you in this part of the passage. Obey your parents because God has promised to love you and keep you. And he will. This passage isn't about getting along at home. This passage is about learning how much our God loves us. And it's about learning how to love him more. And you know how we learn how to love him more. It's by obeying our parents. Knowing that God is loving us perfectly even when they're not. Obeying our parents, even when it hurts, even when they're wrong, even when they're rough. Because our God will never not be good to us. Sometimes he takes us to difficult places to show us and teach us. If you're a parent in the room, this passage and the parable that we've been talking through as an entree into the passage say more to us than they say to our children. And by the way, the parable is actually misnamed. The word prodigal comes from a root that means wasteful. So we could call the parable the parable of the wasteful son. But the behavior of the son isn't really the scandal of the parable. The scandal of the parable is the way the father loves the son and never stops loving the son. So really, if we wanted to name the parable accurately, we should call it the parable of the wasteful father. Love, if it's done right, isn't stingy and calculated and rationed out. It's wasteful. And love, if you're going to do it right, It'll only ever cost you. It'll only ever feel like a cross and a resurrection. Love always wants to give more of itself until there's nothing left of itself to give. But with gospel love, you never come to an end of it. There's always more to give. So here's the instruction for us as parents. It's time for us to stop managing. And it's time for us to get on with the business of loving. And I want you... To learn how to be wasteful. You won't like it at first, but it's good for you. I want you to push yourselves and be wasteful with your love towards your children, towards your spouse, 
toward everyone else around you. And in the case of your children, you'll know what will happen if you actually do this. You will save your children an immense amount of money that doesn't need to be spent down the line on counseling bills. You will save your children an inordinate amount of time sitting in some counselor's office, some pastor's office, with tears streaming down their face, saying things like, I know my parents love me, but they never showed it. And you get wasteful with your love. And instead of running off to some counselor, some pastor, your children will probably run home. And whether we're parents or children, adults, very young, whether we have a huge family or it seems and feels like in our current circumstances we're attached to no one, All of us need to be parented in the perfect love of the gospel father to learn firsthand that his love is worth not running away from. And we constantly need to learn it and relearn it. And here's how. Learn by obeying him. Learn by submitting to him. Learn by trying him out at his word and see what will happen. And let others see you trusting his heart over your own. Let others see you struggling to believe his word more than you believe the voices in your head and your heart. Let others see you exasperated by your own sin, giving up on it and running home to him for forgiveness and rest and renewal. And let others see you so satisfied in his love. You don't have to run away anymore. You're not out to run off Chasing down the latest thrill, chasing after your folly, your immaturity, some idol, a need to be successful, needing to feel young. Let others see you so compelled by the Father's love that you don't want to run off and live with the pigs. And you don't want to run off and make yourself piggish anymore. And if you've gone too far, if you're a prodigal, if you're a runaway, and you're wondering if if this God, this Jesus, in this strange parable, would ever love you like this, you want to run to this God to be accepted like this, but you're wondering, will you be received? Jesus told this parable to put your fears to rest. And wasteful sons and wasteful daughters are loved by a father who has wasteful love to give. So call out to him, forgive me for the life you've given and the life I've wasted and make me a son or daughter welcomed home through Jesus. One night, the famous English Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon and his wife had guests over for a dinner party and at one point in the evening, one of Spurgeon's sons came downstairs to ask a question And he interrupted the dinner party, and Spurgeon snapped at him. He probably scolded him, saying something about bad manners and disrespect, and he sent his son back upstairs to bed. And later, when the party was over and the guests had gone, Spurgeon realized what he had done, and his heart was broken. And believing 
the gospel for himself, needing the gospel for himself. He climbed the stairs to ask his son to forgive him. And later in life, the son admitted, he doesn't know why he did it, but somewhat nervous and afraid of his father, he pretended to be asleep. And so Spurgeon, believing he was asleep, sat on the foot of his bed and he wept and prayed forgiveness. I sinned. My son didn't forgive me. Forgive me for the way I've treated my own son. My heavenly father, my savior, never treat me this way, he sobbed. And his son overheard it all, and that was the night he began to believe the gospel. If my father believes all this is true, and he needs this kind of forgiveness, and he's sure that the savior is waiting to pour it out on him, then I need the same. Now that story has a good bit of the prodigal son and all these verses from Ephesians 6 wrapped through it. A father obeying the Lord because he's so good and a son convinced of it that he wants to obey with his father. A father not wanting to provoke his son and a son who sees his father in repentance being provoked to believe the gospel and two runaway sinners pulled to come home by the eager forgiving love of the Redeemer. With all of our relationships, but especially with the relationships that are the closest for us and the most explosive and the most taxing maybe, the most difficult, but with all of our relationships, I hope Jesus will thrill us with his wasteful love. And I hope he will give us the thrill of being wasteful in love ourselves. In the name of the Father and of the Son and the Spirit. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us. You have never turned your heart away from us. Even though you don't fully have our hearts in the ways that we live. Oh, we've gone looking for love. In far off places. It isn't to be found. You have it to give perfectly. So give it to us again. Give us the joy of your wasteful love again and again. And give us the thrill of having it to give ourselves. Feed us. 
fill us. Show us again. Your love doesn't run out. It doesn't die. And in it, we are made new. And now, church, along with the church in every age, what is it that you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.